find someone to mentor you in the position that you aspire to have. Because a lot of times I notice that people seek out a mentor, the person who tells you how to do it, but they've never done it. Because a lot of times young cooks, they, they just, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but they just look at the, the cook that's better than them to become their mentor or the sous chef that's better than them to become their mentor with maybe a little bit more experience than them. But it's like that person can only take you to where they're at. If you really want to you know, shoot for the stars, you need to get a, a strong mentor behind you. Amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to the latest episode of Flavors Unknown, the podcast where we delve into the world of the culinary arts and the people who make it happen. Today, we have a special panel discussion on the topic of leaderships in the hospitality industry. But it's worth mentioning that the points we'll be discussing today could apply to any business and industry. This episode is also a follow-up panel based on the chapter, The Kitchen as Metaphor for Life, from my new book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. Joining us on the show today are three leaders in the field. Suzanne Gouin, renowned chef and owner of several restaurants in Los Angeles, including AOC and Caldo Verde. Gabrielle Crother, chef and owner of the two Michelin star Gabrielle Crother restaurant in Manhattan, New York. And Andre Natera, former executive chef for the Fairmont Hotel in Austin, Texas. These three individuals have managed teams of people in the industry and will be sharing their insights on leadership style the most important skills for a leader to have, and the challenges and trend they see in hiring today. This is an episode you won't want to miss, so sit back and enjoy as we delve deeper into the themes discussed in the book and explore the world of leadership in the culinary arts and how the principle discussed today can be applied to any business and industry. Also, a big shout out to the culinary students and faculty of Johnson & Wales in Providence, Rhode Island, where I have been invited today to give a presentation related to my new book and host a book signing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. I'm really excited to have the three of you on the podcast today to talk about leadership. Hi, thank you for having us. Hey, so I um, wanted to start the conversation by asking you, what is your leadership style and how you would define it? So maybe we can start with you, uh, Suzanne. Well, I would say I try to lead with a sort of kindness, like a firm kindness, and uh, also sort of teaching and mentoring along the way. I think things have changed so much and that personality part of it is really important. I feel like more and more Maybe I'm going too deep, but I feel like people really want, they really want to be heard and they want to feel like they're important. And it's really, it's key to take the time to invest in sort of each staff member so that they feel that because that is what gets them to stay and work hard for you. And so it's also, I like, I mean, I like to work in a nice environment. I don't like to work in a, you know, screaming when people aren't happy or any of that. I don't think that does anybody any good. So it's, it's kind of my nature, but also. I think it does help to retain staff and keep people happy and, and working hard. Thank you. Andre? I would say there's, there's two different approaches. So people that are relatively close to me, I probably lead them much more differently and much more openly. My direct reports, so sous chefs, maybe my, my chef de cuisines, people that are maybe a little bit further distant. So let's say cooks, entry-level cooks that I might not have as much interaction with them. I try to, I try to lead a little bit more more with the general approach, like I hate to say one size fits all, but you know, in a very large operation, I can't, I can't tailor specific leadership styles to every individual when there's multiple people. But in general, my leadership style is I want to 
really help people bring the best out of themselves. And I'm hoping that I can recognize something deep within them that they may not have yet the confidence to pull out. Okay. How, how do you do that? Do you have a practical example, Andre, when you say that? Bringing the, the, the best out of people? Yeah. So a practical example would be like, let's say, let's say I'm trying to coach someone through how to get a raise. It's a very literal example that I give to people and they'll say, you know, I'm afraid to ask for a raise. And so I will say, we'll start out by going and asking for a, a discount somewhere. Start out by asking for a free cup of coffee. Start out by asking for extra bacon on your burger. Because if you're, if you're afraid to ask for extra bacon on your burger, or if you're afraid to ask for 10% off of your coffee or whatever the case may be, you're never going to have the confidence to ask for more money when it counts. So being able to recognize the limitations that people have put on themselves and trying to push through it, that's a, that's a practical example of how maybe I, I deal with that situation. So, Gabrielle, what is your style at uh, the Two Michelin restaurant in Manhattan? I will say a little bit of both, like you both said. It's, it's at first, I think, a little bit, I think for, for a kitchen team, it's to be in, inspiring them to really put the hours in that are necessary to be successful in our business, to be kind. You know, when I, I like to say my team, when I come in and, and, and I see, and, and I say hi to them, I, I I go as far as, as shaking each of them at the hand and ask them how it's, how the day is going. Be a, be a teacher, be a, a listener also of, of, of the team, of, of every single individual here and there when they have, when they need a moment to, to talk about something. It's not always just about cooking, but just about how they feel and, and just to listen to them and, and see if I, I can help them or, or give them an ad, a piece of advice to make their day either better or, or move, move forward with their ongoing career. I'm, I'm pushing people to always be trying to asking questions to themselves as well, whatever they do, so that there is a tendency when people work in the kitchen to sometimes they want to go faster. So they take here and there a shortcut. So when they do that, I, what I like to do is teach them to answer the questions themselves. If you do that, do you get to the same result? And many things like that, asking your own questions. And if you don't find the answers to really come and see us and talk to us, not only me, the, the sous chefs or the chef de cuisines, but having a, a rapport and an interaction. And like Suzanne said, I, I really don't like kitchens that are noisy, that are people like behavior, misbehaving. I don't like that stuff at all. I never liked it when I grew up in the business through the ranks. It's something that I, and sometimes I didn't stay in places because the work environment was not what I expected. And sometimes it was very, very famous places. It's not because a place is famous that the work environment is a great work environment. But I believe that if you want to achieve something in our industry, the work environment and the camaraderie that is going on within the kitchen or within the whole restaurant is making the achievements possible. It is, it's one, like, like you say, one, like we say, one, one team, one dream. And it's everybody pushing into the same direction that makes the difference and makes the difference not only in the environment we're in and we're working with, but also for the guest. The guest really can feel that everything is in sync and it gives them a better experience and they can feel when something is off and it goes, you know, it goes. It shows in many ways through the whole place. So, Gabriel, you're mentioning that, you know, being in the same boat and rowing in the same direction. How, you know, how do you inject that, you know, that, you know, culture in the, in the restaurant, the culture that you want to, you know, you want to create? How do you do this practically? How do you do the culture? Well, I, the way we're going in, in, in hiring and having people join our team is really hiring the person, not just the skill, more the personality. And if there is a lack on skills, if I believe, if we believe that we can teach the missing skill to bring them to where they need to be, that's what we do. We invest in people, investing in people, investing in their skill. The, I found that over the years, the other way is not really working. It's very hard to take somebody who has not a kind heart to make them a nice person. And I rather go the other way and invest in, in the kind people. And really, if they have a love for this business, when you work in a restaurant business, hotel business, in the hospitality in general, 
I think you are a, a specific human, human being that loves to be in service, loves to do something for others. And I'm looking for that kindness, not just the rootless skill that doesn't take into account the team. Any additional thoughts, Andre, on this? So Chef Gabriel mentioned shaking everyone's hand when he arrives to work. That's also something that I'm a firm believer in. And I know we've we've talked about this before, Emmanuel, and you, I remember you came to my kitchen and we went around and you saw me shake everyone's hand and everyone had the same answer when I asked them how they were doing. And the reason I'm such a big believer in shaking in and shaking out is during that moment, it establishes equality amongst the two people, regardless of where they fall in the hierarchy. So maybe you're the head chef and the other person is on the porter station. When you shake their hand for that moment, there's an established mutual respect and equality amongst the two people. And I know, I know I've worked in places, I'm sure everyone here has as well, where someone way up high on the food chain doesn't even look at the person next to them because, you know, they're so, they're so far down the food chain. And it's, it's an uncomfortable feeling, honestly, probably on both ends. It's probably uncomfortable on both ends. So I, I think that's something important when building a culture is that the foundation of the culture has to be built upon respect for everybody. So I thought that was a great point that the chef brought up. This idea of the culture that both Andre and, and Gabrielle connected to the idea of like the human dimension more than, you know, the skill sets because of, you know, being able to be part of a team. I'm just curious, Susan, at your level. So you have several restaurants. So there's as well a dimension of the style of the restaurant that play a, a role, you know, in establishing a culture. So do you hire people differently, you know, from one of your restaurants compared to another or that doesn't play doesn't come into, you know, into play. No, I would say my standards are the same. I'm looking for the same thing, despite which restaurant it is. I think of my restaurants as siblings, you know, so they have the same parents. They need to have like the same ethos and the same goals and the same you know, coming from the same place. Even at the Hollywood Bowl where we're, we're consultants, but I still really treat them like they're my restaurants. I mean, I think each restaurant, the restaurants themselves, because I think the personalities are such an important part of the culture, each restaurant has a different personality and that's basically from there's me and then there's the chef de cuisine and the sous chefs and the people that help build that culture. So I always try to keep, I keep those people really, really close to me. And it's funny, actually, just from listening to us discuss one thing that I didn't say before is I think I definitely, I have the overall leadership style is the same, but I would say a very different approach for the chefs and sous chefs than for like the entry level line cooks. Right. So I definitely delve deeper with the, with the chef de cuisines and the sous chefs and, really get to know, I know them all very well and their their upsides and their downsides. And I do really try to work with them on what they need to improve and maybe more specifically with one than, than the other. And, and I would say, I'm, you know, I'm a little tougher on them than I am on the, the, the entry level cooks because they're, I mean, they want that. I think they want, they want that mentorship and they want to be pushed. They want to know what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. So can you give some examples? I'm guessing that you, you are establishing you know, short-term goals and long-term goals, you know, for their, for their career? Definitely short-term goals and long-term goals. But again, a lot of it, sort of like Chef Gabriel was saying, is it's about the personality part is huge. So I have, I have one chef de cuisine who is super strong in the kitchen, super strong organi organizationally, makes everything happen. He is, his shortcoming is his communication skills, you know, with, his, with the staff. And I know that, and he knows that, and he knows that it's something that we're like, we're working on together. So I'm much more closely involved in that kitchen with when things come up with staff members, you know, how he's then approaching those situations and dealing with them. And I do that. I do those, those meetings and those counselings with him because he is still learning how to do that. And I have another chef de cuisine who has a little bit less, you know, has not been maybe cooking as long. So he's, he needs a little more guidance in that direction, but he's super strong with the people skills. Like everybody loves working for him. He always seems to figure out the right thing to say and what to do. And that staff has stayed for a really long time. So he has different, I need to help him in different ways and guide him in different ways than I need to help than the other person. So I think it's knowing those key players so well and knowing 
what mentorship they need. And then for me, it's just being really honest. I'm a big kind of communication person. I don't think it does if we call him like chef X, like it doesn't do him any favors. If I sort of pretend everything's great, give him a good review. And I, I need, he knows he, he, he knows as well as I know what the issue is and what he needs to work on. And every time there's an issue with it, we sit down and we talk about it and he's getting better. He's, he's much, you know, it's been a long road, but he's, he's constantly improving, but he's not there yet. So when something comes up, I need to be there with him and keep teaching him. Have you seen your leadership style evolve and change over the years? Well, I would say mine, mine has always sort of started in that same place because it came from the kitchens where I worked, some, some great and some not great, and just knowing how I want to be treated and the environment that I wanted to create. And so I think I always had that as a starting point. And maybe, you know, definitely over the years, I've learned better ways to get there. I've learned to be a little more, you know, I definitely had, had moments where I mean, I get, it's not like I don't ever get upset. And it's like, I don't ever, you know, there's moments when I get mad and I, I mean, I yell, I don't yell very often, but when I yell, it's kind of a big deal because I don't yell very often. And it, actually I don't do that. I haven't done that. And I'll think I did that more earlier than now. And I think you kind of mature and grow out of that a little bit, or you learn how to handle it better. So I think it's just kind of a fine tuning thing, but I think I was always coming from the same place. Gabrielle, have you seen your style evolve? Well, over the years, yes, of course, because for a simple reason is like, you know, in your early days, you work in environments that, like I said earlier, that you don't really like. So I knew, I knew what I didn't want in my kitchens and, and, and I really worked hard to have that because, I mean, over the past 20 years, many, many things changed, but I always was really a driver of not having misbehavior going on in the kitchen and respecting each other. And yes, I think what really change, what a big change is like you, as you mature, you get older as well. I believe that you get better at listening people, having, having a, a deeper conversation with each of them as you, as you talk with them. But, um, otherwise it's always been the same, the same key tenets of, of having a good environment and basically having a, a good time in, 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 in an environment that is demanding, that takes a lot out of your day, a lot of hours. And it was always my, 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 the key. We're spending more time at work in general in this industry as we spend with our family. So I, I'm really a strong believer to have an environment where you can, you can be yourself and also that you heard. If there is something that you you can go, you can talk about it and it's addressed and and, and everybody works together to really uh, preserve that environment, create that environment. When I go through hiring processes, when I listen to people, everybody wants to join a good team. Nobody wants to join a bad team, right? But in order to have a good team, everybody represents a drop of water in a bucket. And everybody needs to do his part to create that good team and respect each other and work together. That's really what we, what, you know, what we do. And, and it's integrity, respect is one of the big things that we, that we are, that, that we believe in. And we try to hold ourselves to that, you know, also. So respect and integrity that you're talking about here, it's our key. But what are like the other important aspects that you are looking for when you are hiring someone? When somebody's joining us, we also asking them, especially in the kitchen, to spend at least one shift with us just to observe on our side. We observe them, how they interact with other people and also what kind of question they ask. And we give them a whole lot of food to taste. And, and then at the end, have a good conversation and see what comes out of that. But it's, again, another way of looking at if that person is enthusiastic and interested in really joining a team. And, and that's, that's how, it's, uh, how we work. And it's, it's been working well, but like also a sense of ownership when somebody joins, looking that they own, they own what they do, they own the, the, like moving ahead and have that sense of ownership of, of their station, of, of whatever, whatever it is, but that they're standing up for themselves. So, Andre, you know, I'm, I'm going to answer the question a little bit differently because I think it goes without saying, as it's been already touched on, that you're looking for someone with integrity, you know, good heart, this, that, and the other. So let's assume that they have all that. If I'm looking for a very specific skill set, I have a set of interview questions where I start to poke a little bit on their culinary knowledge. 
And they're very general questions, but I'll ask them like, if you could invite three chefs over for dinner, living or dead, who would you invite? And that question makes me, it helps me understand what they think of great chefs. And, and then I ask them, what would you cook? That's the next question. So if you have three great chefs at, at the dinner table, what are you serving them? And then they tell me what they're serving. I said, okay, and what's the conversation icebreaker? What's the first question you ask? And as I start to probe with some of these questions, I understand how they think about food, how they would impress great chefs, what they think impressive food is. And, and I am able to say, okay, based on their answers, they might not be ready for the top end restaurant that I'm running. They might be ready for the middle of the road restaurant because those are the, and, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but those are the chefs that they're watching. Those are the chefs that they're admiring. So if I'm, if I'm throwing them into my most high skill set restaurant, I might not be setting them up to succeed. So it's important when I'm interviewing people and selecting them that there is a little bit of a, of a qualifying conversation as to what's their skill level, what's their passion level. And also I'll ask them straight to the point is, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I don't mean that as, a, as an insult to anybody, regardless of age. But a lot of people, when you ask them, what do you want to be when they grow up? They might say, you know, I, I, I want to own five restaurants. And a lot of people will say, you know, I just want to be a great sous chef in a in a, in a in, in this type of restaurant. So that says, okay, that allows me to place them where I think that they'll be most successful because it does the person no good. If when you start to probe, if you put them in a position and, and I'm, I'm going to speak out of school a little bit, but in kitchens, sometimes there's kitchens that are, there's sharks and then there's, and there's goldfish in the kitchens. And you can't put someone in a kitchen with a bunch of sharks if they've never been in that environment. And I don't mean that it's, it's negative or toxic or anything like that. I just mean that the attention to detail is, is intense and, it's an environment where you need to have a high, a high level of competency to, to succeed because you're going to constantly feel like you're failing if you're not as on the same level with everyone else. So setting them up and putting them in the right position where they could succeed is something that's important to me. Just a quick question, Andre. When you said and you asked that questions, you know, give me like three chefs that you are lo looking up to or, or that you want to cook for. If there's anyone that mentioned your name? Yeah, one time. <laughs> so I was interviewed. I, I've gotten all sorts of, and it's it's usually the standard answers, right? It's it's usually you know Anthony Bourdain or or, or Thomas Keller. It's always the it's always the same chefs that everyone says. But there was this one time I was interviewing someone, and they said I'd invite. I don't remember who it was. I think they said you know Thomas Keller, Anthony Bourdain, and I'd invite you. And I said you're hired because I know what you're doing. That's a good trick, but <laughs> but either way, you're hired. That's the perfect answer. So it works. <laughs> it works. That's funny. Suzanne, what about what about you? What what important aspect are you looking for? You know, when you hire a you know a chef de cuisine, for instance. So I usually move. As, I'm a big believer in in promoting from within, and I feel like I've had one successful hiring of a executive sous chef from outside. And I've had a couple of not successful ones. Again, that culture and sort of understanding of my food and what I'm looking for and what we're all about and how everything works. I think it's really hard to come in at the top and to not have experienced the restaurant, the progress of the restaurant from, from being at least a, like from being a line cook or a sous chef. So I am usually, and literally all of my chef de cuisines right now are people who've been I've that I've moved up from sous chef positions over time. So I have a lot of people who have stayed with me for a long time. And I think there's a lot of, for me at least, there's just a lot of, of value in that. They kind of, I will say like the best chef de cuisine is the one that started with me on pantry because they just, they know everything from the ground up. How, and they may not be the best chef de cuisine for another restaurant, but for me, that's kind of what's worked out. So was it yeah. one of the positive consequences for you and, you know, to create the group, you know, the business group in, you know, in LA and, and offering, you know, this career evolutions within that group, you know, from people that have been working for you? Yeah, yes. I mean, one benefit of opening new places is that you have new opportunities for, for people who otherwise may leave and go work for somebody else. I mean, actually, the Chef de Cuisine and the Chef, chef de Cuisine and Sous Chef at Caldo Verde, which is our newest restaurant at the LA proper downtown LA proper hotel. They both were chef de cuisine and sous chef at Luke. So when we closed, we closed Luke right before the pandemic, and they literally held on through that whole COVID. I mean, they we closed November, we closed March 2020, and then we opened October 2021. And so they both kind of stuck around and then came and opened the hotel with me. We had a 
executive chef at the hotel who ended up not working out. And my Tiffany Delapena, who was my chef de cuisine, ended up moving up to be the executive sous chef of the hotel. And then my sous chef moved up to being the, the chef de cuisine. So, you know, you're talking about the pandemic and, you know, obviously, you know, the recession that we are in at the moment. What are like the, the, the challenges that, uh, that you see, you know, hiring people today compared to, you know, like five years ago? I don't know if it's a generational thing or a generation combined with pandemic. I find it's, it's very, very hard to find those super dedicated, eager, I'll do whatever you want. I just want to learn. I just want to cook. Kind of like how I feel like when I was, when I was starting and how I think we've, we've hired a lot of those people along the way, you know, people who we ended up really training and, and bringing up, but who had that drive and passion. I think it's harder to find, at least for me, it's, it's harder. Those people seem fewer and far between these days. I think people are, and this is, I don't know if it's an LA thing or a younger thing. I'm interested to hear what the other chefs say. I think there's a, there's a real focus on money, even at an entry level line cook level as well. I mean, they're just, it's, you know, whereas it used to be, you know, you just take minimum wage, you take whatever they pay you. I mean, back when you could work for free, you'd work for free. I don't think, I don't, you see, you see it every once in a while, but I feel like it's, it's, it's rare. And there's a lot of, I mean, I just, I had a situation with a couple, a line cook who's been with me for two years and wanted to leave because I decided he want to leave because there's a, like a bar rooftop bar down the street and he found out they were paying $25 an hour plus tips. And so he's basically making $24 an hour and he wants to leave because he can make $25 an hour plus tips. And I sat down to talk to him and I said, so, you know, what's going on? Are you, you're not happy here? He said, no, I love it here. I said, well, are you learning? Yeah, I learned so much. You know, I've worked all, I've worked at different stations and you know, I really appreciate working with you. And I had to say to him, okay, there's a certain point where you have to decide, you know, is that extra dollar an hour, you know, you're going to go somewhere else and maybe it'll be great. I don't know. But there's a certain point where you kind of, there's value to where you are and what you're experiencing. And if you feel like you're not done here, it seems, seems sort of crazy to leave, to make a dollar more, you know, doing like nachos on a rooftop. I don't, unless that's what you're into. And he Actually, he ended up staying, but I had, I kind of had to, like, he didn't, he wasn't thinking that way. You know, he was thinking it was really about, it was really about the money. And it's, it's funny. He actually was somebody who worked for us before the pandemic as a cook. And he was making, when we closed for COVID, he was making $13 an hour. And we were able to bring on a tipping, you know, tip the kitchen. It was a change in California law. Originally before we were not allowed to tip the kitchen, there was a change in the law. So we started tipping out the kitchen. So now he makes about $24, $25 an hour. I mean, compared to three years ago. And it's like, it was when he first, when they first came back, it was, he was amazed and it was so great. And then I just think it's human nature that you get used to things really quickly. And I feel like this gen, it, again, I don't know if it's a generation thing. I don't know if it's from them all, you know, being off from COVID and sort of getting unemployment and not working and kind of realizing like, wow, there's more to life than work which there is, <laughs> but it's, I definitely find that's a struggle right now is that it's just not, not finding as many of those really passionate, dedicated young cooks and, and that the money thing is, is big. And it's hard because, you know, you know, you're, you know, we run at pretty thin margins and when everything just, you know, there's a cost of goods and there's just this pressure to, to keep know. raising rates. Yeah. You have to keep raising it because otherwise you're going to lose people to everybody else who's raising their you know, raising the salaries because they're going to lose people. It's, it's a lot. You see the, the same thing, same situation on the other side of the country, Gabrielle, on the East Coast in New York? It's about the same, I will say. It's about the same. It's more a challenge to find the people that really want to put the hours in. And uh, it's, it's the, uh, the money is important, but the hours, I think it's, and I think it's a residue of COVID working on a Saturday, working on in the evenings, it's, it's become a little bit more difficult to have people accept that, I think. And we also in an industry where, you know, people go to culinary school and we make them dream of big things. And I think the, the hard reality when you come out from a culinary school is that you're just at the beginning of anything. You have no experience. And that experience, I think the big, the big lack, the big misunderstanding in the industry is that the one thing that you cannot buy with money is really experience. You really have to do it in order to get that experience. You really have to go through the ranks in order to gain that and make a path for yourself, make a career for yourself. 
And I think that's where finding like that whole mentorship, that whole being close to people who have, when you, you can, you can see something in people and on the early stage in a kitchen, if they're going to make it through, through the years, if they're going to make it through, or if they're just here for a short period of time and maybe then change industry. Yeah, we, we deal with that a lot, you know, people that poking in then and, and, and then change different, go to the different, to a different path. The one thing is that it, it's, it's connected to, to really what Susan said, you know, money, money is, money is important for everybody at the end of the day, but there seems to be a, a bigger focus now on money than anything else. And that when you find the right people, they still find that connection between that right balance between learning something, learning a craft is, is earning something in our business combined with the, with the, with the being fairly well paid. It's, it's, it's a nice balance. Some people understand that. Some people don't really, but I think it's harder to find that really the commitment and, and holding, hanging on their dream. When people come in our industry at the beginning, we all have a dream. We all want to achieve something. It's finding the right path, finding the right people to talk to, finding the right mentors to tell you what's your next step. What are be having that relationship on, you know, explaining the next steps to build themselves in order to move up. In order, and I believe I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer, just like Suzanne, to really promote from within. This is what. Over the years, I have done the most. And my, my culinary director here now started with, with me at the modern at the time on the line as a line cook. There is nobody in, in, in my kitchen that is in management that has not worked as a line cook before for me. It's not happening so that they understand what we're doing and they understand what we're looking for. And, and that's how it, it, it really works. Sometimes, sometimes people take a step back to join in order to move up again. But they are asked to really go, go through the steps to understand and be part, a true part of the team. Uh, Andre, do you want to add anything on this situation of hiring? Because I, after that, I would like to go into the mentor. Yeah, topic. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll add a little bit. Nothing that hasn't, nothing that's going to be, you know, too profound. But one of the, the, you know, as was discussed, there's like this arbitrage that's being played between between restaurants. They'll say, hey, give me $18 here, I'll get 19 there. You give me 19 there, I'll get 20 there. And they go back and forth between restaurants. At a certain point, that becomes unsustainable because restaurants or whatever can only pay certain much, certain amount before all of a sudden it's eating into a small profit margin that most restaurants are running with anyway. So you you saw immediately after COVID the arbitrage between between restaurants. And what was interesting during that time, I experienced it in Texas. I'm sure everyone else experienced the same thing. Is whenever a restaurant opens in your neighborhood, they're going to take some of your cooks. It's it's just natural. New restaurant opens up, they have to pay a little bit more because they need to attract the talent. They typically hire one and a half cooks when they only need one because they know they're going to lose some staff throughout opening. So you're going to lose some staff when a restaurant opens in your neighborhood. But Right after or right during COVID, all the restaurants opened at the same time. I've never experienced that in my career where you're usually dealing with one restaurant trying to steal your cooks. Now you're dealing with hundreds of restaurants all fighting for the same amount of cooks and all playing the money game because they need 10 to, to support their kitchen, but they only have three. So that was something that there was a moment in time where the cooks had all the power. It was a, it was a it was an employee employer employees market. They had all the power to ask for the amount of money that they wanted, and they also had the power to ask for certain positions that they might not be ready for because you needed two sous chefs, for example, but the, you had no sous chef applicants, and you had cooks that said, "I want the title," and so you're like, "Well, it's maybe it's them or nobody." So a lot of chefs made decisions along the way to put people in positions that maybe weren't ready for the position, and so. It, it was an interesting time, but you know the the, the chefs here on the on, on the show will understand that if I if I have a, a crown and I put it on you, it doesn't mean you know how to run a kingdom yet. Just bestowing the title upon people, there was still a, a, a big knowledge gap because people were maybe two to three years away from being ready for the position. And I think you know that was probably 2020, 2021. So I think a lot of the the sous, the first time sous chefs or the first time leaders in position are probably more ready today than they were two, three years ago, which I think 
it's it's sort of causing this self-correction because I think we've played enough arbitrage with raising the salaries a little bit. So I see it heading like we're heading out of that, but it was definitely a difficult couple of years trying to staff our kitchens. One one other staffing thing, which I don't know if this was an issue anywhere else, but there's a is this gig worker situation, which is, you know, there's a company called Instawork and they basically it's, you know, cooks can basically decide when they want to work. You know, they just pick when they want to work, which I think coming out of COVID was very, like you're saying about people not wanting to work Saturday nights. Well, you could just go on your phone and log in when you want to work and take whatever jobs you want. And that actually had a big impact on us too, especially at the hotel and at the Hollywood Bowl, where it's, we were just opening and then the Hollywood Bowl is seasonal. So it makes it very hard to staff. And especially just for stewards and dishwashers, we would, we ended up, you know, it's like you play the game. It's like the game that's killing you, but you join in and play it anyway, because I need, at the end of the day, I need somebody to wash dishes. And so then you're paying, you know, somebody $24 an hour to dishwash. It's a new person every night. They have no idea what they're doing or where things go, or sometimes maybe you get a good one. But I think that was just, and, and hopefully I think now again, like Andre's saying, I think it's evening out a little bit now where we're able to find people who some people who will take those jobs, especially the low, you know, the, the, like the dishwashing and stewarding jobs, I think. But we ended up using those services because we literally did not have anybody who would, who would take the job. And I think that was just really, I mean, talk about not being able to build a team. And then it's also, you have your, you know, your, your core cooks who are working really hard. And then they have this dishwasher who doesn't know what they're doing, who's wandering around making $24 an hour, you know, going outside and, disappearing or whatever's happening. I think it was just a really hard time for the industry because there's a lot of, not only was it hard on the employer, but it's also sort of a, a morale killer for the rest of the team that is a team and is building a team, but you can't, it wasn't complete. And you have this sort of slacker person who's doesn't have the same goals or interests is basically making the same amount of money, which everybody knows. And yeah, I don't, again, Okay, before I switch to the rapid fire questions, I not not a lot, but a few. I, I just want to ask you guys questions around mentorship because uh, Gabrielle, you mentioned the importance of you know having identifying you know mentors. That's important, you know, in in, in this industry. So if there is like you know for the people that are listening and that are interested in this industry, for do you have any pointers? So from your point of view, what what makes a good mentor, and how do you identify? identify, you know, people that can help you, you know, throughout your career. Maybe Suzanne, if you want to start. The mentorship is a lot of the same traits that we've been talking about. I think it's, I think that listening component is key. And I think it's some of the, a good part of the mentorship actually doesn't really have anything to do with food. You know, it's, it's mentoring, it's mentoring in leadership. It's mentoring in how to communicate with people it's, and this is on, you know, for the, for the like sous chefs and chef de cuisine, it's, it's mentoring on how to manage it. You know, there's always something that's coming up, but it's not something that you expected. And so, and it may be situations that I have not dealt with before. You know, there's always some, some new one that comes up and I think approach, you know, working on those situations together. And so that you can show your, you know, teach your, your chefs how you handle a situation. I mean, the food part is, we get in the kitchen and we cook together, you know, that's, that's the food part, but, or talking about new things and, but it's much more straightforward. I think the, the mentorship on the leadership is sort of, it's many different unique situations that come up. And so I always tell the sous chef, when somebody gets promoted to a sous chef, I always tell them, I don't have a manual. I can, you know, we're going to teach you how to order. We're going to teach you how to make everything. We're going to teach you how to do schedules. We're going to teach you all those things, but I can't teach you how to handle each situation that comes up. And I think over time you teach them by one by one, having these experiences that you work through together. And there's a common thread for how we deal with them. And that's that, that's that mentorship. I think it is very, it's, it's very sort of one-on-one and it's, it's almost like a psychological, psychological workshop or something on figuring out how to, how to handle situations. I mean, in addition to also, you know, teaching them there's so many legal legal aspects now and ways that you can and can't say things and you know getting involved with hr and teaching them how to manage difficult situations or also it's also sometimes knowing that you don't know what to do and to ask for help i mean i have that situation too well i'll just end up having to i call hr because i don't i don't want to 
put my foot in something and, and say something the wrong way or, and then I get, once I get that, I can go move forward and, and do what needs to be done. But Andre, any pointers on, you know, selecting like the energy, finding a good, good mentors? Well, I would say first that I, I think having a good mentor is like having a cheat code for success. Because if you have a good mentor, they, they will help you achieve whatever it is that you're, you're out, you're out to achieve much quicker than if you're trying to do it on your own, because obviously having wisdom and experience and having access to someone with wisdom and experience is going to be great. But if I was looking for a mentor, and this is the advice that I, I give chefs and cooks when they're also looking for someone to mentor them, is find someone to mentor you in the position that you aspire to have. Because a lot of times I notice that people seek out a mentor, the person who tells you how to do it, but they've never done it. And if, if you're looking for, let's just say you want to own a restaurant one day, then having a mentor that owns restaurants is a good mentor to have. But having someone that's never owned a restaurant to mentor you to do that, th- there's, there's things that they just don't know. They, they, could, they could guess that that's what it is. But if the true way of, of, of knowing something is to have experience in it and being successful at it. So I would say when selecting a mentor, find that person that has demonstrated competency in those areas that, that you also want to gain competency in. Because a lot of times, young cooks, they, they just and I don't mean this in a bad way, but they just look at the the cook that's better than them to become their mentor or the sous chef that's better than them to become their mentor with maybe a little bit more experience than them. But it's like that person can only take you to where they're at. If you really want to you know, shoot for the stars, you need to get a, a strong mentor behind you. Gabrielle, any thoughts on this? Well, mentoring someone is it's time. It's investing time in people. And I think it's mentoring is also a two-way street where you there is a, the values, values of integrity and respect and commitment at the end of the day, because it takes a lot of time to mentor somebody that you believe in. First, you, you really want to believe in the person in order to put that time in that you, you have expectations that that person has what it takes to go to the next level or get to their dream, closer to their dream. Many chefs, many, many cooks have dreams, like I said earlier, but that having, finding that that relation, having having that person that really you believe in, that's then the commitment of putting the time in and ment- mentoring to get them to the next level. But it's a two-way street. And I think in today's world, values, many, many, many values are, uh, are kind of undermined by the younger generation. And, and here and there, when we find the people that are truly believing in the values, those are the ones that in our kind of industry flourish. Because like I said, experience cannot be bought. It needs to be lived. And that's what mentoring is. It's like the the rapid fire question. So Andre before mentioned that, you know, he has his favorite questions. You went interview for a job that was, you know, who you would cook for and what you would serve them. So Suzanne, let's start with you. Do you have like one favorite question when you interview someone for a job? No, but I'm going to steal that one from Andre for sure. I saw you making a note. (laughs) (laughs) I did. (laughs) That's great. I actually, for me, it's again, really about sort of getting to know the the person. I mean, I asked them like what, you know, what, what did, what, their mom's coming over for dinner, what would they cook? Or I'm coming over for dinner, what would they cook? Or you know, what things they'd like to cook? But nothing as specific as that, which I really like. You know, I just, I usually just start with, I ask them their culinary path or their, their, their sort of like a verbal resume. You know, how did they get into food? What, why are they, why are they doing this? Why do they want this? Why do they want to be in this, in this field? And then I do like it when they, I try to get them just to talk about, you know, growing up and why they, you know, I think you learn a lot when you hear sort of why they got into the industry and then, sort of why they left each job or what they liked about each job or didn't like about each job. But it's, I don't have a specific question like that, but I do now. Gabrielle, you have one that you ask all the time? I usually ask them where is, where was the last great dinner they had and where. And I'm very interested in what they have to say because a lot of the, the cooks out there, they say, well, I love to eat in this place, but I don't have the money. I be- totally believe that if you have a passion for this business, no matter what, we all went through that. You you find a way to put your foot your feet into the place and have the experience. Uh, I like I like to ask them with what they like to cook, what kind of food they really love, what brought them to the industry, and and then it evolves as we go into the conversation depending on the answers. And I like to go from from one topic to the other in a, in in a fairly quickly way, 
so that it's not just focused on one set of, of, of mindsets. So I like to kind of like surprise with different questions. So sometimes cooking, sometimes completely something else, just life in general, just to see the reactions. Do you have like an advice that each of you, you receive when you started in this career that in fact you kept, you know, throughout like your, your life in, in the business that was really relevant? One bit of advice that I got when I was going through a difficult time was you're a good man. Keep being a good man. That's the, the best advice I received because sometimes you're, you're inclined to make bad decisions. And the second piece of advice that I was given that, that really stuck with me was when, when you're, when you're not sure what the right thing to do is, do the right thing. As simple as that was, it, it made sense. Well, it was, it was connected to, I mean, when you're young, you're kind of impatient. And I think patient was one of the things that was said a lot. Be patient. Things going to happen. Don't give up because there is a tendency in this industry. Things take long time. And a lot of, I see a lot of people that suddenly give up at just at that right, at that wrong moment where things will have been moved to the other side. And I think patient is a big thing. And it was for me. And looking at around you and, and see what's going on and, and look at the opportunities that you have within the kitchen. Cook with your ears. Yes. So, um, Suzanne, anything on for you? Yeah, I have, I have one that I took and one that I didn't take. And the, the first one was, it was, I met a, a million years ago. I was, I'm from LA and I was here. I was back from. I think on break from college and I, I wanted, I was trying to decide, should I go to France and cook or should I go? I was working in this restaurant in Providence, Rhode Island. Should I go back there? What should I do? How do I decide my path? And I went and knocked on the door at city cafe and Susan Feniger answered the door, which is funny. And I just said, I was told her my story and she said, Oh, let's sit and have a coffee. And she said to me, you know, you always want to work the places where you want to eat which I think is true as opposed to, you know, trying to build your resume on whatever you think other people might be impressed by. It's, she was like, you know, cook the places that you want to eat, which I thought was really good advice. I had another funny one when I was, when I spread, come back to LA, you know, I was away for 10 years and I was really trying to open my own restaurant. And actually Joachim Splishaw was a mentor of mine. And he was, you know, he was actually great about just being very open with giving me a lot of advice. And he told me two things. He said, never pay any key money and never sign a personal guarantee. And so I looked and looked and looked for spaces. I could not find anything that didn't have key money. I found the space for Luke. There was key money. I decided I was going to pay it anyway. So we paid the key money and made the deal. And then I remember calling the liquor companies to come in and, and Southern or somebody came and I said, oh, well, we don't sign personal guarantees. And he said, then I guess you don't get liquor. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, so I guess I'll break the second rule that my, my mentor told me. And I guess what that told me was that I... I wanted to do it so badly that I, that I just, I, I didn't listen completely to his advice, which if I'd been able to follow his advice would have been great, but I think it was actually not really, I think he was able to do that because he was joking. And I realized I, <laughs> I was not so, but it was funny. So Andre, you know, I know you, you read a lot. There used to be a time you, you always impressed me on the fact that you were reading like a book a week. So, and do you have any suggestion on a good book about leadership? <laughs> is that is that a setup? Yes, my book. <laughs> my book, Culinary Leadership Fundamentals. It's every, everything that a cook would need to know that's new in position. So I would recommend that book. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that's true. Suzanne and, and Gabrielle, any any reading around leadership that uh, could be useful for anyone listening beside Andre's book, of course. <laughs> Last one that came out from Will Gidara is an interesting one because it's the story of the, the whole thing from the front of the house. And I, I know him. So I, I, I read the book and there is a lot of things in there that, you know, talked to me because I was part of, of, of the company when uh, all these things happened. So, but it's, it's a pretty interesting book on whoever is, is interested on, 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 on figuring out how our business ticks, basically. So it's, that's a good one to read. I would say Danny Meyer's books too. Okay. Last question, which is more like kind of a fun, funny question is what is the funniest call of excuse that you have heard? You know, someone calling the restaurant said, sorry, I cannot come today. Well, we had, there was a landslide and I couldn't get out of my driveway. Okay. It's a very LA excuse. <laughs> I would not work in New York. <laughs> That's a good one. I told them about, I told them about Uber. <laughs> 
Andre? I, I have one that's kind of bad, but I'm going to share it with you. Is I had a cook that called off because they had a family member die and they couldn't afford the funeral. So we all raised money for the cook so that they could bury their loved one in another mm-hmm. town. But the loved one never passed away and they used our money to go on vacation. Oh, oh no. my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, that's cool. we had somebody. We, we had somebody call out that, that we had somebody call out that the that his mother died, and we actually called the house and the mother answered. <laughs> but he did not take our money. That's terrible! Oh my that's god! That's terrible! Yes, Gabrielle, how are you going to top that story? <laughs> It's not a good, it's not a really, but that's really happened. I mean, here, you know, over the years, I had a couple times cooks and, and sometimes they poured us dishwashers. It's not a funny thing, but that got literally murked and stuff. And we had to kind of raise money for, for them to, to come back. Oh, wow. To really, so the whole restaurant pulled together, give them, you know, give them something so that they can start over again. Sometimes it happens. Some, you know, broken in and everything disappeared. And, but they really, they stayed with us. They worked with us and we helped them to go back on their feet. It's, wow. it's not a, it's not a funny thing, but it, no, it's, 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 it's something where as a community, we came together to make, to bring them back, you know. Very good. So again, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate that. You know, I know it's difficult with everyone's schedule. So I appreciate that we were able to come together. Good, good to see you, chefs. Nice to meet you. Good to see you, chef. Okay. Bye, Daniel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's a wrap for this episode of Flavors Unknown. We hope you enjoy our panel discussion on leadership in the hospitality industry and how the principles discussed can be applied to any business or industry. A big thank you to our panelists, Suzanne Gouin, Gabrielle Kreuther, and Andre Natera for sharing their insights and experiences with us. We hope you found the discussion informative and inspiring. Don't forget to check out the show notes of this episode on our website, flavorsunknown.com, where you can download the free Flavors Unknown digital recipe book with delicious recipes for more than 20 chefs feature in our book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door. As always, we appreciate your support and encourage you to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. New episodes are released every week, so make sure to tune in. Next week, we will be featuring Ari Amarillo, the famous hot yellow pepper from Peru, in our Taste the Future segment of the podcast. And in two weeks, we will have a special guest, Chef Jose Mandine from Miami sharing his insights on creating delicious and innovative dishes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please help us spread the word by sharing it with a foodie friend or a colleague. Word of mouth is the best way to help us reach more people. And we appreciate your support in sharing Flavors Unknown with others. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Flavors Unknown. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.